0: God's Word, passage in 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 13. And our theme this morning is, He is coming back. He is coming back. We are indeed living in very interesting and challenging times. We see it everywhere. There is a challenge to the family with same-sex marriage about to become law in Australia. Something that has never happened before in the history of civilisation, but other countries are ahead of us and we had to catch up. There is the challenge to the dignity of human life, with Victoria uh, approving euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia to those over the age of 25. And something that was just narrowly defeated by one or two votes in the state of New South Wales. Thank God for that. There is also the challenge to the biblical and also natural understanding of what it is to be male and female. Something that is supposed to be quite obvious no longer isn't. Underneath it all, there is a, a tightening. There will there is a tightening already, and there will be an increasing. Tightening and restriction on the freedoms that we have, including, and first on the list will be religious freedoms. Because of this, and rightly so, many are wondering whether we are indeed living in the last days. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about this, especially in the prophetic books, but not just the prophetic books, also in the epistles. Now, throughout my life, and uh, hanging around churches, both sitting on the pew and from the pulpit, uh, I have met people, certain people, who are drawn to prophecy like, a bit like moths to light. Uh, they might not have much time for the Bible or the church for that matter, but they come every now and then but they love, they, they really relish all that prophetic stuff. For the believer, for the believer, biblical prophecy is given to us to encourage us, to exhort us, to keep us on track on what our mission should be. For the unbeliever, biblical prophecy is there to warn to warn sinners to repent and to, to flee from God's coming wrath. Prophecy is not given for us to speculate about dates and times. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples at, at his departure when he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. At the same time, he did tell us about the woman in labour and all these things, the signs that are going to lead up that we should be able to, to understand the times because there's a build-up to what will eventually happen. Now, in his second letter, the Apostle Peter is writing to counter some false teachers that had gone around into the different churches and there's always going to be false teachers. And they were denying the fact that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. And the reason that they denied this truth is because they wanted they had their own personal reasons but right up there is the fact that they wanted to continue to live in their own sinful, sensual lifestyle without accountability, without any fear of judgment or anything like that least of all to God. Even then even believers had to agree with some of the accusations that the Lord's return seems to be taking longer than what we had expected and this is already 2000 years ago so Peter explained to them why that is that the Lord has indeed a very different time schedule and time frame to ours very different perspective but make no mistake he says in, in, in chapter 3 verse 7 of 2 Peter that the day of judgment is coming like I said It is not given to us to satisfy our curiosity, which there is a lot of about the end times, but rather to motivate us toward holy living. So we're not going to discuss a a detailed chronological account of the end times, but we will follow the, the main biblical point here. That this world and all its treasures, everything that you see, is going to be destroyed, it will be burnt. God is going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. So you need to make a basic choice. Do we do we want to live for everything that is certainly going to be destroyed? Or do we want to live in the light of our inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth which the Lord has promised us? Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? So, let's look at these verses a little bit closer. Uh, Verse 10, we'll pick it up from verse 10. First of all, disaster for unbelievers. Disaster for unbelievers. It says here... But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And Peter explains that the reason, one reason for the the, the delay in the Lord's coming is that he is patiently giving sinners the opportunity to repent. That is in verse 9. But it would be a huge mistake to conclude that just because he delays, that he will not come at all. Will come, it says here, will come. In, in, the Greek, in, in the original Greek language, it's, it emphasises that the Lord is certainly coming. There is no, no doubt about it at all. No doubt. And this theme of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord It's familiar, it's language from the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets. And in the Old Testament language, sometimes it points to very near historical judgments, like when the invading armies of the Assyrians were going to come, and that happened. So, these are, they were pointing out that this is going to happen soon, and it did, just as God said it will. At other times, it looks ahead It looks further ahead to a final great day of judgment. So, prophecy looks at at one mountain top, one mountain peak, but it also looks at the mountains behind that because ultimately that is what biblical prophecy is about. It's in God's hands and there is a certainty about it. And it doesn't muck around. The biblical language does not muck around with politically correct language that we're so enthralled by today. It always looks like God doesn't care about how we're going to react to it. He just lays it out. And prophetic language about the day of the Lord always uses frightening language of destruction. For example, Jeremiah, um, that we did a, a series a few years ago, warns us in Jeremiah 46 verse 10. He says, But the day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance. For vengeance on his foes, the sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it has quenched its thirst with blood. That's just an example. There have always been those who don't like the fire and brimstone language in the Bible. They prefer to see the kinder, kinder, gentler God who will be understanding and forgiving to sinners. That uh, his grace is what we really need to be focusing on. For example, just to give you one example, however, what a balanced view we should have. I think we can't go past Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul starts off with, says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So he talks about kindness, forbearance and patience. And what is the purpose of God's kindness, forbearance and patience? That God's kindness is meant to lead you to something. What is that? It's repentance. That's verse 4. But that kindness and patience is building up to something. It it's even, gives even more reason for judgment, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent, impenitent, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That's something you don't want to store up. Storing up wrath, it just keeps building up. storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So while we should, we must proclaim the good news of God's grace and kindness, God's eternal love. For God is love. We must also warn that a day of frightening judgment is coming for those who do not repent who choose to go their own way, who choose to reinterpret the Scriptures in their own manner. It's like the Jefferson Bible that uh, President Jefferson from the United States, he, the Jefferson Bible is a Bible where he actually cut out all the pieces of Scripture he didn't like. So he was happy with it. That's pretty handy, isn't it? I don't like that. Yeah, yeah, that's in, that's out. Brilliant. We want to note four things from this verse, verse 10. It's a very important verse. So, let us break it up a little bit. The first thing we want to say is that His coming is certain. The day of the Lord will come. If I haven't said it enough, I'm going to repeat it again. There isn't any doubt about it. For us, personally, it, it will happen, or it might happen the day We die. That is a certainty. In Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. Very certain. This is an appointment we cannot avoid. We cannot delay, despite all the vegetarian meals you're going to have, or even miss. You can't say I'm not going to be in town that day, I'm sorry. No one yet except Enoch and Elijah have been able to dodge this appointment. But there is also the coming day of the Lord. This is a big one when Christ returns. And although, although this idea may not appeal to the intellectuals, it is the very truth that Paul proclaims he proclaimed to the philosophers on Mars Hill, if you remember the, the message in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, he said, he said this again, and it's a consistent message. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. If God has fixed that day, you better believe that it will come. Secondly, it will be sudden. It is certain, it is sudden. It says here, like a thief, like a thief. Peter is simply repeating the words of Jesus, who said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 to 43, Therefore be on the alert, For you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Paul also talks to the Thessalonians about a thief in the night in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. How do thieves work? Thieves work on the element of surprise and distraction while you're doing something else. That's when they do the best work. While you were sleeping, while you were away on holidays, while you weren't paying attention, they could snatch your bag, break into your home and do all of that stuff. But if you knew that something is going to happen, then you're not going to go away because if it says, by the way, a thief is coming at 5.20 this morning, they're going to come, so I thought you might just give them a welcome, really, uh, with a baseball bat, uh, that type of stuff. It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Um, because if you tell the cops, by the way, a thief is going to come at 5.20, you guys want to come around? It says, mate, you're off a rocker. That's not the way the thieves work. I'd be an idiot because they use the element of surprise they, they they need that so you don't take precautions so you're not ready and unbelievers they they don't care what happens because they don't believe anyway they don't want to give accounts they don't want anyone, least of all God, to tell them you can't do that. They want to run around in blissful ignorance because any restrictions on their proclivities is, is just something that they're not going to vote for. How dare they tell us we can't do that? It's my human right. So when we tell them that the day of judgment is coming, They're obviously going to ignore it. But we as believers have no excuse. We are supposed to know. So if we do know, then there is no excuse for us not to be ready. We are to be ready. Thirdly, there is no escape. No escape. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it. Done in it will be laid bare. If something relatively small happens, you will try and avoid it. If there is an accident on the freeway whatever, then try and avoid that freeway. They give you a warning so you don't get stuck in traffic for two or three hours. If you know that you know the sea is going to come, there is a tsunami, whatever, people run towards the hills because you have enough warning and all that stuff. But let's, let's say something really big is going to happen and they can see it coming. There's this humongous comet the size of you know of a country is coming to smash the earth astronomers they can see it they can picture it with a telescope and all that type of stuff where are you going to run where are you going to hide no I'm just going to dig a hole mate really you can sort of picture, we've seen different movie scenarios right where this is replayed over and over again. And then we send Superman and the, uh, and the village people to rescue us. You know, that type of stuff. Uh, sorry, the, it's, where are you going to run? Peter warns us that at the coming of Christ, the earth will be laid bare. And this is, the word laid bare, I will get to the other one later, but just now laid bare is the idea of exposure. Those who thought that they could hide their sins from God will be exposed. There is nowhere to run. No one, no matter how clever, there are no judges, there are no lawyers, there's nothing who will be able to excuse you from what you have done. You cannot get away with anything. Christ's return will be disastrous for all who have not repented of their sins so you need to be right with god before he comes because by then there will be no avenue of escape and lastly the words the works of man destroyed this is just the last part of verse 10 the works of man destroyed Peter not only says that the earth will be burned up or exposed, but also that its works, everything done in it. Everything done in it is is an interesting expression. It means everything that man in his pride has accomplished will be melted away. Peter repeats this word, just in case you missed it, he repeats it in verse 7, he repeats it in verse 10, and he repeats it again in verse 12. When something is repeated that many times, it's obviously, it's not because, you know, Peter's suddenly getting dementia. He's forgetting stuff. It's because of emphasis. But we need to heed the warning rather than get distracted or procrastinate, putting it off. To get right with God. And and although there are similarities, Peter is not talking here about the the same thing that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says that our works will be tested by fire. Peter here is talking about both the destruction of sinners and their works. It's not just the sinners, but their works as well. Everything that they have worked so hard for will will go up in smoke and then the eternal judgment. There is nothing that we can possibly say this is what it's going to be like because humanity has never experienced anything like this. Any, any type of demonstration or example or even a, a comet a smashing the earth will be nothing compared to what God is preparing. I, I can't give you any, any pictures here. And we have only one reason to believe it will happen and that is because God has said so. No wonder those who do not trust in God just will be rolling in their seats. If they were here, they'll be rolling in their seats in laughter saying, you've got to be kidding me. Now this is not to say that everything that unbelievers work for is a complete waste science has delivered some wonderful advances to us, not least of all the medical advances where we've been able to to tackle many of the things that have killed life prematurely. Wonderful technology that benefit all of the human race. God, you see, has given humankind. The ability to to invent, to improve, to design, to build that's that's great. But if like the if we say if we glory in the in the achievements of man like they did the Tower of Babel, um, those things tend to be done for the glory of man, not for the glory of God. And these are the very things that will end up in a pile of ashes on the Day, on the day of Judgment. Speaking of the uh, ashes, you're probably some of you will be watching the cricket at the moment called the Ashes series. And, and the name ashes actually goes back to a hundred years ago when Australia was playing England and uh, the, the Poms were so, so shocked at the fact that they lost that they said, you know, that the that the stumps will be burnt and that's what happened and the ashes will be taken back to to Australia. Well, one of the English players in that original test was C.T. Studd who felt the call of God upon his life to go on a mission, to go on a mission to Africa and he he was a wonderful missionary who set up uh, the journey for so many others that followed him. C.T. Studd, wonderful man and he wrote... He wrote this, because he left cricket, he left all that and followed God, and he says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. There's a whole poem that, that poem, but that's actually one of, one of the, the most significant words there. And it just brings it into focus, isn't it? Whatever your achievements, whatever you've done, whatever year, you can take pictures of that and get your name behind a building and all that type of stuff, but no, will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The second main point is that since Christ will return in judgment, two things to remember from verses 11 and 12. We should be holy people. Verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to be live you ought to live a holy and godly lives. It's not a it's not a question what you must do. This is a command. It's an exclamation. It's it's talking about a way of life, a lifestyle. Now Peter used this word back in, in chapter one, verse three, when he said that God has has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And he, he and he goes on to a whole list of things that God has has given us, the the qualities that He has given us. He's given us moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness and love. These are all the tools that God has given us to live a holy life. And holy conduct means conduct that is distinct from the world. Distinct from the world. It doesn't mean weird I've seen Christians who are distinct because they're weird know what I'm talking about right they go out of the way to show that they want the world to know that they're weird but I think they would be weird whether they were Christians or not, to be fair. If we're weird, if we accuse it of being weird, it should be because we live in obedience to God's word. Because we hold to the values that the Bible teaches us to live by. We live different values. We live in light of eternity. We live by principles that the world mocks, doesn't understand. We don't live for all the junk that is going to be burnt anyway. We, the type of weirdness that we show is that we forgive our enemies. We pray for those who hate us. When somebody slaps us, we say, Well, oh, now that you've even it up, mate, now I got that one as well. Turn the other cheek. That's weird. Right? That, that we, we selflessly give ourselves <coughs> to those who even won't say thank you. That's weird. That when somebody says to us, you know, I'll carry one mile, and one says, No, I'll carry for you two, mate. Doesn't matter. I'll go the extra mile. With nothing in return. You don't have to know what do you need? You want money? What is it, mate? No. It's okay. Calvary paid for it all. Alright? Worry. I'm gonna get rewarded. It doesn't have to be you. We love people above things. We treasure Christ above all else. That's where our treasure is. And then we should be looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. Verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve and the heavenly bodies will be melted away as they burn. That's according to the English Standard Version. Three times in three verses, 12, 13 and 14, Peter uses the verb waiting for or looking for. This is not like mum and dad taking little Johnny, kicking and screaming to his appointment to the dentist, alright? You know, come on mate, we're going to go to the dentist this is we don't want to be dragged kicking and screaming (coughs) to God's judgement day we actually want to be looking forward to it waiting for it to happen in eager expectation that this is Lord come now Maranatha when all of his promises to us will be fulfilled. We should love the day of his appearing in two Timothy four eight. That just as the bride awaits, eagerly awaits the, the, the day when her, her groom returns from the war to be with her always, awaiting that day. But what does Peter mean when he says that we are not only to be looking for, but also hastening the coming day? of God. The Lord's coming seems delayed while he waits for all, Wise as he wait? Because he waits for all to come to repentance. And as we live godly lives and proclaim the gospel to the lost, we have a part in speeding up the Lord's return. Jesus said that the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. It's not that we, we can change the eternal decree of God's timeline. He is sovereign. But in some way, we cannot completely understand when we live in light of Christ's coming, it speeds up, from our perspective, his return. We are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we live holy lives and take the gospel to the nation, it hastens. Christ coming. And thirdly, lastly, we look forward to the new heavens and a new earth, verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that the present in Romans 8, that the present creation has been subjected to frustration and decay because of man's sin that is the truth but God has promised to restore it when Christ returned and Isaiah gives this, this beautiful picture that uh, Isaiah chapter 65 of, the, of the, the lion laying down peacefully with the lamb they haven't been buddies before but they will be The new heavens and the new earth is a physical place where we will dwell with glorified physical bodies. We can read about it in 1 Corinthians 15. This concept that that we will be spirits just floating around, finding a, a cloud or somewhere to pitch a tent and that type of stuff, it's just unbiblical, you know, playing harps. Little angels, you know, Christmas time we're going to see little angels appearing everywhere, but that's that's not it. And and for good measure, angels aren't these fluffy little creatures, by the way. They're not teddy bears. They're actually fearsome. All right, you don't muck around with them. The heaven that believers will experience will be new, perfect, onto which we will dwell. The new earth will be free from sin, from evil, from sickness, from suffering, from death. Created by God, a recreation of new heavens and a new earth. Now, the picture is that of heaven and all this type of stuff, we tend to read passages like these at funerals. I've done a few, I know what I'm talking about. Because they're used for comfort to those for those who are grieving that where they're going. But you know what? The Bible actually gives these passages for our everyday life. It's not just when we're dying, when we're dead. It's actually these words are given to us to live each and every day. The light of eternity. To encourage us in our everyday walk that whatever we go through, it's not going to last. It cannot last. Not in Christ. And our response toward the patience of God is to regard the delay in terms of salvation. The delay of God in judging sinners has made possible even our salvation, has it not? And as much as we want Christ to come back soon, ready, right now. Just think as well about those in our family and loved ones who are not believers, not yet believers, and what the coming of the Lord means for them. So let's not get all gung-ho and everything else, Lord, just come and everything else, because you know exactly what that means as well. So I don't proclaim this with a bravado, It is the word of God, however. It is a sobering word of God. How beautiful then the delay of God's kingdom. That in the light of God's patience and salvation of lost sinners, including us, including us, that God will delay until the day that he is appointed that the unsaved may, may have another chance to hear his word and come to repentance. It's not a flaw in his character, his delay. It's, it's a display of his grace. But it's also storing up, isn't it? Storing up the wrath. Oh, that by grace they might empty that vault of wrath once it is surrendered to the cross. Praise God for His mercy and grace. The doubt, the delay that we're seeing is not a pretext for accusing Him but rather an occasion to adore and praise Him and to glorify Him for what it means for us. Until that day, let us continue Be faithful.